Hello and welcome to the 33rd Sunday of Ordinary Time. I'm your host, James Germain, and today we are in the penultimate Sunday of the calendar year. That's right, two Sundays from now is Catholic New Year's. Are you excited? I hope you're going to be having lots of parties and stuff, right? And go to Mass, hang out with friends, maybe do a barbecue. Yeah, I know, it's not going to happen. Catholic New Year's needs to be a thing. We need to make Catholic New Year's a thing. I mean, Chinese New Year's a thing. Jewish New Year's a thing. Why don't we do anything? I mean, we could have two New Year's. I'm going to make it a thing. I'm going to celebrate whether or not you do. But let's get back to the discussion. This is the end of the calendar year. And so we're looking at end-of-world prophecies. These epoch concluding readings. The church calendar year is very much structured to look over the history of salvation, the history of existence. At Easter, we read the beginning of the story with the creation and Christ's death being this new creation. As we approach the calendar year, we're reading about the end of the story. And our first reading comes from the book of Daniel. This is the first apocalypse story in scripture that I'm aware of. In those days, I, Daniel, heard the word of the Lord. At that time, there shall arise Michael, the great prince. Some Scholars have suggested that this is actually referring to Jesus, Michael meaning one who is like God or who is like God. But the Septuagint renders this as archangel, and most Catholic scholars and scholars who believe in guardian angels accept that this is a reference to St. Michael, the guardian angel of Israel. Michael, the great prince, guardian of your people, it shall be a time unsurpassed in distress, since nations began until that time. At that time, your people shall escape. Everyone who is found written in the book. Note, escape here is not in that physical sense. right? They're still going to suffer. They're still going to die. But in the end, they're going to escape the real torment, the real pain, the real suffering. They're going to escape hell and pass into heaven. They will spiritually escape. Uh, Some readings have this as, they shall be delivered. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake. Some shall live forever. Others be in everlasting horror and disgrace. Many of those who sleep. So not all. And there's some discussion as to who that other category is. The New American Bible makes it sound like the many who sleep and shall awake is then broken down in the subcategories of those who will live forever and those who will be in everlasting horror. Uh, the Hebrew allows for the alternate translation of two categories, those who awake and those who don't, those who awake being those who will live forever and those who don't who will be everlasting horror and disgrace. I tend to lean towards that interpretation, which I know puts me at odds with the authors, the translators of the New American Bible, but it would not be the first nor the last time that happens. But the wise shall shine brightly like the splendor of the firmament. The firmament is a concept in Middle Eastern mythology that there's this big clear dome covering the earth that keeps this giant ocean of heaven from crashing down upon us. So you can pretty much just think of it as a sky. And no, it's not saying literally that there is a firmament. It's just the like the horizon metaphorical. So the splendor of the firmament would be like stars, sun, moon. 
But the wise shall shine brightly like the splendor of their firmament, and those who lead the many to justice shall be like the stars forever. So again, this isn't two classifications. It's not the wise will be like the splendor and those who lead many to justice shall be like stars. No, the wise are those who lead many to justice. All right, this is uh, just paralleling itself. It's being repetitive. The wise will lead many to justice and they shall be like the splendor of the firmament, i.e., they shall be like stars forever. Response to Psalm. You are my inheritance, O Lord. O Lord, my allotted portion in my cup, you it is who hold fast my lot. I set the Lord ever before me. With him at my right hand, I shall not be disturbed. You are my inheritance, O Lord. Therefore my heart is glad and my soul rejoices. My body too abides in confidence because you will not abandon my soul to the netherworld, nor will you suffer your faithful one to undergo corruption. So this psalm isn't having to do with the end of the time, the end of the age, the end of the world. It's having to do with the end of life, the end of my time, the end of my age. And not abandoning my soul to the world. It's not that my soul won't pass into a afterlife, but rather that when I do, I will not be abandoned. God will be there with me to guide me into heaven. Right? And nor will your faith ones undergo corruption. Again, this is not physical corruption. I'm still going to die, and my body's still probably going to decay. I mean, I might be a saint, one of those uh, immaculates who doesn't decay, but that's unlikely. Probably I will decay physically, but not spiritually. God will preserve my soul. He will bring me to heaven where I will never decay. I will never undergo corruption. You are my inheritance, O Lord. You will show me the path to life fullness of joys in your presence, the delights at your right hand forever. You are my inheritance, O Lord. Early apologists like to use this psalm and the broader context as referring to Christ's death and resurrection, him being the true faithful one who undergoes neither spiritual nor physical corruption, but is brought into heaven bodily. And you have others like the saints who don't undergo physical corruption, whose bodies remain uh, undisturbed. Or even Mary, who was taken up bodily into heaven, didn't even undergo death in that fuller sense. The second reading is from the book of Hebrews. Brothers and sisters, Every priest stands daily at his ministry. The primary emphasis here is on Jewish priests offering animal sacrifices, but you can also see it as referring to Catholic priests. That's not an entirely unjust reading. Every priest stands daily at his ministry, offering frequently those same sacrifices that can never take away sins. Right? The Jewish priests would offer animal sacrifices, and even they recognized, well, killing a bull isn't going to atone for the sins of a person. You can't kill a bull in your stead. So they questioned, well, then how does that work? And they came up with the theory that these animal sacrifices pointed back to the near sacrifice of Isaac, that Abraham's willingness to offer his son and Isaac's willingness to be sacrificed was truly meritorious. And that that sacrifice, our near sacrifice, was the medium by which sins were forgiven and that these animal sacrifices pointed back to it. We as Catholics know that they were close, 
but that instead even Isaac's near sacrifice was pointing forwards to Christ's actual sacrifice. That's Christ's sacrifice, which is truly meritorious, that can take away sins. And that Catholic priests, when they stand and they offer bread and wine, that bread and wine cannot take away sins any more than animal sacrifices could, but that it points back to Christ's sacrifice. And that's the sacrifice that we perpetually offer that does perpetually take away sins. But this one offered one sacrifice for sins, right? Christ offering his one death and took his seat forever at the right hand of God. The priest stands daily at his ministry, but Christ took his seat forever. He's made his sacrifice. His earthly work is done. His death, his resurrection, his ascension, that's over. And by it, our salvation is made possible. But he's taking his seat as in he's taking an office that's beyond that of the earthly priests, offering now intercession, making a self-offering before the Father. Now he waits until his enemies are made his footstool, for by one offering he is made perfect forever those who are being consecrated. There is discussion as to what this last line means, but I think it has to do with the idea of uh, justification, sanctification. He has made possible our true absolute perfection. He's taken away the guilt of our sins, and he's made it possible for us to approach God. We have been justified, and we've made it possible. He's made it possible for us to be sanctified, but we still have work to do. His work's done. Our work is just beginning. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer offering for sin. Alleluia, alleluia. Be vigilant at all times and pray that you have the strength to stand before the Son of Man. Alleluia, alleluia. Our gospel comes from the book of Mark. Jesus said to his disciples, In those days after the tribulation, a time of great distress and suffering, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will be falling from the sky, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory, and then he will send out his angels and gather his elect from the four winds and from the end of the earth to the end of the sky. Learn a lesson from the fig tree. When its branch becomes tender and sprouts leaves, you know that summer is near. In the same way, when you see these things happening, Know that he is near at the gates. Amen, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things have taken place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But of that day or hour no one knows, neither the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. Before we can really discuss these readings, we need to understand how Jewish prophecy works. Because we have this idea in the Western world that a prophecy is made and then it has a fulfillment and then it's over. But that's not how ancient Jews, ancient Israelites, saw prophecy. Rather, they saw prophecy as something cyclical. So a prophecy would have an initial fulfillment and then it could have many smaller fulfillments and then you'd have a final fulfillment. And sometimes you get these more elaborate prophecies that have statements that apply primarily to one or the other and don't make as much sense in relation to the alternate. So, for instance, this generation will not pass away until all these things have taken place. Well, obviously, 
the final fulfillment of this would be the end times, when Christ comes back in that fullest sense of the meaning of the word, at the end of the world. And that didn't happen while that generation was still alive. They're dead. And we're still here. So we can take this as the generation will not pass away in a spiritual sense, just as we saw uh, Israel being escaping tribulation, but not physically, not undergoing corruption, but again, spiritually, not physically. They will not pass away in this final fulfillment. We're going to have to take it as they're not spiritually passed away. And this works in that sense because the word until following, which will not pass away until, the Greek word until doesn't mean before this won't happen, but after it will. It just means it won't happen before. So they're not going to pass away in that spiritual sense, either before or after. The first fulfillment happened in 70 AD with the destruction of the temple and the overturning of the sacrifices and the old covenant. It ended. That age came to a violent and dramatic conclusion. The temple, which was decorated with the sun, moon, stars, that was seen as a microcosm of the entire universe, was destroyed, and not one stone was left upon another. Truly, the powers in heaven were shaken that day. And the Son of Man coming in clouds, literally, not so much, but we see it in the Mass, Christ coming in the Eucharist. That was happening before and continuing after. But it was this new dawn, this new era in the church. We weren't the offshoot of the major religion. That religion ended. We were the religion. It was the dawn, the birth of this new Christian era. Great power and glory was brought to the church thereafter. There is still time of suffering and turmoil following, but it would eventually lead up to the church being recognized as the religion of the Roman Empire. And eventually the Roman Empire fell, right? Uh, The powers in heaven can be used to refer to royalty. Oftentimes in the Old Testament, you have statements like the sons of God being used to refer to princelings. Powers in heaven. The Pharaoh of Egypt was considered to be the son of the god Ra. Powers in heaven, the shaking of political authority. The Roman Empire eventually comes crashing down. And everyone goes, oh, shoot, this is terrible. But the church is there to take those pieces and collect them. And it becomes the dominant power in Western Europe, not under the Roman authority, but over the remaining political authority. But it is very much tied up with that authority. And there's princes and dukes and kings who get power over the church in places. And this continues on throughout the Middle Ages for a thousand years until the end of that era with the so-called Enlightenment and the end of the monarchs and the birth of democracy as the dominant world order and the separation of church and state. Everyone goes, oh shoot, this is terrible. But what happens is that the church gets separated from that political authority. And now we have this new era in which the church has had has more authority over itself than it has ever had in its history. In this sense, the spiritual sense, the church is more powerful now than it has ever been. The church of today has more wealth than it has ever had in the past. Right? With each death, with the end of each era, the church is reborn. 
Son of Man comes with greater power and greater glory than he had in that prior era, that prior epoch. So you have that first fulfillment, the destruction of the temple. You have many smaller fulfillments throughout the age. There will probably be more smaller fulfillments to come. There's uh, multiple visions of saints and Mary coming and saying how the democratic era will come to an end and there'll be a rebirth of something more akin to monarchs. So there's probably more errors to come before we reach the final fulfillment. But in that final fulfillment, we know that the earth will pass away. All of this will come to an end. There's a, uh, a poem, Ozymandias. I had to memorize it in high school, and I still remember it for the most part. I met a traveler from a far land who said, Two vast and trunkless legs of stone stand in the desert. Near them on the sand, half sunk, a shattered visage lies whose frown and wrinkled lip and stare of cold command tell that sculptor well these passions he read, which yet survive, stamped on these lifeless things, the hand that mocked them and the heart that fed. And on the pedestal these words appear, My name is Ozymandias, king of kings. Look on my work, see mighty and despair. Nothing around remains, round the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lone level sands stretch far away. This poem was written uh, in relation to an Egyptian pharaoh whose tomb had been discovered, and all these archaeological uh, elements are being brought to London to be displayed. And this poem was written in relation, wow, look at the empire that this pharaoh built, and yet look what remains. It all came crashing down. Everything he built, it's effectively gone. How is this? Time passes. Errors end. Everything we build on this world, in this life, it's going to end. Someday your very name will be forgotten. But God's promise is that when the end comes, we're not going to end with it. We're going to continue on. Something better, something more grand, even than this, awaits us. And that what we do in this life the monuments we build, the legacy we leave, that doesn't matter because that's going to end. What matters is how much we love today. How much we follow the Son of Man. Be vigilant at all times and pray that you have the strength to stand before the Son of Man when he asks you, how did you live your life? When it's all over and you look back, what are you going to be able to say that you accomplished? At the same time, the promise of these readings is this, that when the world is falling apart, right, when society is coming crashing down, when Christians are being persecuted and just everything looks terrible, don't despair. Because that is the cycle of things. That's how it works. There's a time of peace and tranquility and we get very comfortable and happy with it. And then it ends with tribulation, turmoil, wars, famines, persecutions. And on the other side, we come out even better than we were before. When we see the storm raging, we can look forward to the rainbow at the end. When we see the storms of this world raging, we can look forward to the coming of Christ at the end. Either in that final fulfillment 
right? The end when he will come back in glory fully, truly, and the new heavens and the new earth will be born. But also in that smaller fulfillment, a new era in which the church will be more influential, be more powerful, more free to do its ministry better than it did before. This is the promise of Christ. This is the promise of these readings as we approach the Advent season. But that day or hour no one knows, neither the angel in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. How is it the Son doesn't know when this age is going to come? The end. There's discussion on this point, of course. There's debate. I think the best answer is that because it hasn't been written yet, it hasn't been decided, it hasn't been set in stone, it's still up to us. That's what Christ is saying, is that this isn't a date set. These eras, these multiple fulfillments, we get to decide when they happen. It's based very much on our actions, our choices. How good are we going to be at evangelizing, at seizing control of the world order and bending it to the will of God? That's what's going to determine the end of the age, not some prefixed date. And the Father knows because he knows all the various paths that we could choose, and he knows which path we're going to choose in the end. But we haven't chosen yet. It's not written. It's not set. It's up to us. I think that's what Christ is getting at. So, brothers and sisters, I want to thank you for joining me again today. I look forward to seeing you again next week. I pray that God would bless you immensely and that you would receive all the blessings you can from the Mass and that this going over the readings beforehand will help you to engage those readings on Sunday. God bless. See you next week.